again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. There are three short letters in the New Testament right before Revelations that are easy to overlook. John's second and third letters are more familiar, but the remaining short letter delivers a potent message and one of the best-known doxologies in all the Bible. Teaching team member David McNeely starts a series from Jude with this message entitled Contend for the Faith, which covers Jude verses 1 through 4. Thank you for joining us today. David McNeely, pastor of the young adults and young families here at Perimeter Church, and it's a joy to be back with you again this morning as well as the next uh, two weeks after this. Perhaps the greatest gift that we have been given is the Bible itself. Now, God himself and his salvation, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, I'm excluding, uh, I'm excluding the Godhead in our salvation. What I'm saying is things that are given to us, I think we can make an argument that the Bible is the greatest gift that we have been given. It is the word of God that was spoken. What was t- the Bible tells us even in Psalm 19, as well as Romans, Paul tells us that Romans, that creation itself all points to a divine creator. That we get clues as we just look out and see the stars and the order of creation. We say there's got to be some sort of an intelligent designer there. But what creation is insufficient to do is to lead us to the God of the universe. That is something that he has to do. He has to reveal himself to us. And he's chosen to do that through his word. And so he spoke out his word and people like Moses and David and many others pinned down the very words of God as he breathed out. And somehow or another, he actually used their personalities, their experiences. They weren't puppets in the process, but they began to jot down what it is, exactly what God wanted them to say. Careful, meticulous attention to get across to us who he is, because this is the primary thrust of the scriptures. Scriptures tell us who God is and how it is that we are to relate to him. And so he did this process over 1,500 years and on multiple continents and multiple authors that were in the process, three different languages that went down into it, and yet this amazing unity to where all of the Old Testament points forward to this guy who shows up, and all of the New Testament points backwards to this guy who showed up named Jesus. And what it says about Jesus was that the word became flesh and he dwelled among us. When God spoke, he sent a message to us. It is a great, great gift. Can I just ask you a quick question? How well are you stewarding that gift? Are you dwelling on the word? Are you meditating on the word? Are you listening to the word? Are you placing yourself underneath the authority of the word? Are you reading it and studying it? Has it become such a regular part of your life that the thought of going days upon days upon days without getting into the word, uh, that just unsettles you? You probably all have been given some sort of a gift in your past where you knew this gift was to be stewarded well. You knew of the value that was attached to it from the giver. When that came, you knew it's my responsibility and great privilege to take care of this. God says, how well are you stewarding it? Now, one of the things we're called to do is to study it. There's multiple ways that we could study this word. We could go about it in a subject matter where we look 
at all of the scriptures as to what they have to say from Genesis through Revelation about a particular subject, be it theological in nature or be it something practical in nature. I'm not trying to say that theology is not practical, but just saying that it could have to do with something like our justification or sanctification or glorification. What do all the scriptures have to say about that? Or it could also just do a subject matter um, search in which we're going to find out what does the scriptures have to say about marriage and about parenting? What does the Bible tell us from beginning to end about work? What does it tell us about friendships? Those are great and valid and necessary ways to study the scripture, but I would like to make a case this morning that where we as believers need to make a living is by starting at the beginning of a book and working our way all the way through the end of a book to find out what God had to say through that author to that people. Learn what he had to say then, and then we can appropriately apply into our day and age what it is he's trying to say. God is brilliant. He knows exactly what he's saying. And how many times have you experienced it in life as you've been walking along in the study of Scripture and then boom, there it is. I needed this right now. You need to make a living from beginning to end. You need to do what it is that God told Joshua to do, to meditate on the Word day and night and then be careful to put it all into practice. We'll become prosperous and successful. We need to have the same kind of affair, love affair that David had when he put down in Psalm 119, the longest chapter in all of the scriptures, all of the beauty and majesty and glory of the word of God. God spoke to Ezekiel, told him to eat the words of God, but perhaps it's best summed up when Jesus said, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hear what he has to say from beginning to end of a book. That's what we're gonna do for the next three weeks. Today, in the next two weeks, look at a little book that probably most of us are not all that familiar with. Some theologians say it's the most forgotten book in all of the scriptures. It's the fourth shortest book. There's only 25 verses to it, and yet it packs a punch for us uh, today in this day and age that I think we'll get to the end of the series and you'll say, wow, had no idea that was there. Now, my goal for this week and the next two is that we simply walk away saying, I know exactly what God was trying to say through Jude to the people he was writing to, and now I know what God's trying to say to me now. It's my goal for us. You have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Jude. The easiest way to find it is actually to go to the back of the Bible, Revelation, go back one book, and it's just probably mostly just one page for you in the Bible. Anytime we start a new book in the Bible, there's three primary questions that we need to ask. They're not the only questions we need to ask, but there's three primary questions. Number one, who is the writer of this letter? Who is the author of this? What do we know about him, his background, his experiences, etc.? The second question we need to ask is, who is the receiver? Meaning, who is the recipient of this letter? Who is it intended to go to that's going to let us know about their situation, about their personality, their struggles, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And the third question we need to ask is, what is the reason for the letter? Writer, receiver, reason. Why is he telling them this? What was true of that culture? What were the struggles in that particular church? If we know these basic uh, questions, then we're going to have a much better idea how to rightly interpret the word and then appropriately apply the word to our lives. Now, all three of these questions are going to be answered in the first four verses of the book of Jude. This is how we're going to divide the book up. Today, we'll look at just the first four verses. Next, we will look at verses 5 through 16. And then the week after that will be verses 17 through 23. Other theologians may divide it differently, but that's how we're going to divide it for us in the next three weeks. Begin reading with me the book of Jude, 
verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The first half of verse 1 is going to give us the answer to the question, who is the writer of this? And the answer is Jude. Now, Jude was a common name in this day and age. In Greek, it is Judas. Jude is just a shortened form of that. In Hebrew, it is Judah. Lots of folks have this name. And so the immediate question comes out, well, how do we know which Judas it is that's writing? Now, the only likely response that we have, the only likely candidate we have is because he gives another qualifier in here. He says he's the brother of James. So we know that he is the brother of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, which means he is also the brother of Jesus himself. Nobody else will fit that particular category, and there's several things that we know about this brother of Jesus. We know that he's one of four half-brothers of Jesus. The reason he's a half-brother is obvious, because Jesus did not have a birth father. They shared the same birth mother, but Jesus was conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit. No man was involved in the process, and so they have the same birth mother, but no birth father. There were four of them, and not a single one of them believed in him, according to John chapter 7. They all did not believe in him. They did not place their faith and trust in him. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, it tells us this. There was an occasion which Jesus had gone out. He had ministered. He had come back into his hometown. And while he is there, crowds are gathering and gathering, gathering in masses. And then his family says, oh, my goodness. And so they go out to get him because they said he's lost his mind. His family thought he was a whack job. Okay, this is Jude right here who thinks Jesus was crazy. Now, in fairness to him, Because I don't know what it would be like to grow up with a brother who never sinned. Okay, I'm just saying, throwing out the possibility there might have been some jealousy going on uh, in my heart at that time. What we know is this, is that sometime after the resurrection, the family turns, they believe, the Holy Spirit does a work deep in the recesses of their heart, and they see him no longer as just a brother, a family relationship. They now see him as the God of the universe. He was right all along about who he said he was. They repent of calling him a whack job, and now they become followers of Jesus in the process. And according to Acts This guy, Jude, is one of the leaders in the church. He's not an apostle. He's an itinerant preacher. He goes from place to place preaching and teaching and encouraging the saints. Of all the things that we could say about Jude, this is what impresses me the most. What are the first words that come right after he identifies himself? Jude, a servant of Jesus. Now, you better believe if I'm going to try to write and impress someone, I'm going to let them know, by the way, I'm Jesus' brother. Just throwing that out there. A lot of things I learned along the way. You probably want my counsel. Not, not Jude. 
See, Jude knows he's that guy who thought he was crazy. He's the guy that did not believe when he had every opportunity to believe, when he walked right beside him, when he slept near him, when he worked alongside of him, when Jesus treated him with kindness and compassion all the way through his life. He had every opportunity to believe in him, but he did not believe. And yet God did a work in here. And for Jude, he says, it is a delight to be a servant of Jesus. Several years ago, I was at a conference, and this conference, lots of different folks were there, but um, there were two guys in particular that were standing over here to my right, and they began making their way towards me. Now, one was a theologian, and the other was in, had a musical background. Not that those t- two things were mutually exclusive, but that was just their backgrounds, and they began coming over, and they had found out that I was from a church called Perimeter. So they make their way over, and they said, are, are you at Perimeter? I said, I am. At the theologian says, do you know Randy Pope? <laughs> now, here's what started swelling inside of my heart. <laughs> Do I know Randy? <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Why, it was just the other day that Randall and I were eating at his favorite restaurant, Twisted Taco, which not many people other than his privileged friends know that's his favorite restaurant. <laughs> We're sharing a bowl of chips and cheese dip, and while we were dipping it at the same time, he's actually asking my counsel about ministry-related items. (laughs) Do I know Randy? (laughs) Praise God, I didn't do that. It was in here. It didn't come out there. Good. Okay, and you can't make this stuff up. After we're done talking about it, he is a godly man, a humble man. I I say that everywhere I go. (laughs) The musician says, do you know Laura's story? You would think I would repent on the spot and it would not be an issue after just dealing with this. Oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) Oh, Laura's a good friend. You know her story. I know her as Laura Elvington because I'm besties with her husband. We go out all the time. In fact, Laura was just in my house just a couple of weeks ago asking for parental advice. And who knows how many songs she's written as a result of my sermons. <laughs> Again, the Holy Spirit had enough restraint over me that I, it didn't come out here. But that's what I want. I, I want to say I, I'm important. James says, I'm just a servant. I'm just a servant who comes before him and he is up here and I am down here. And yeah, we have the same mom, but he is not me. That's important that we hear this because he's setting the stage. He is going to get after him. Okay, next week is not going to be a feel-good message of the fall. And it's important we know that Jude is coming up and he's not looking down upon the people and saying, you guys need to get it together. He's coming up right alongside of them and throwing his arms around saying, we've got a lot of work to do. Primitive church is not God's gift to churches in the world. Yes, he's using us mightily in the lives of other churches and, and absolutely he's choosing to do that. But we have plenty of issues that we have to work through. But what I can say is this. It is such an honor and a privilege to work alongside people that have earthly renown and fame. 
not just Randy and Laura, there's others. Bob Cargo is a church planning guru. People know him all over. Like Gordon Moore, people search him out all the time. I could go on and on with leaders in our church that have worldwide fame and notoriety and not a single one of them are impressed with themselves. It's a privilege to know that their attitude genuinely and sincerely is, I'm a servant of Jesus. Is that your first and primary identity? Or is your identity wrapped up in being a mom? Being a dad? Being a CEO? Being a doctor? Being a coach? Being a sibling? Being a fan? What is your primary identity? I am a servant of Jesus. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. The second R that he tells us is that he tells us who the receivers are. And the receivers are just simply given one name, the second half of verse one, to those who are called. The called are the receivers of this letter. Now, there's other questions we would like to ask when we start a book. When was this book written? To whom specifically was the book written? Paul writes to the Romans, and he calls the book the book of Romans, and he writes to the people in Philippi, and he calls it the book of Philippians, and the people in Thessalonica, and he calls it the book of Thessalonians. Here, there is no specific group that is mentioned, although he is writing to a specific group who he understands their scenario, writing them about a very specific scenario and situation. But what I love is that God said, this one right here, It's true of all the books, but I'm not going to put a label on it because it's good for all peoples in all places in all times and to be applied by all of the church. He says you are the called. This idea is beautiful in the scriptures. It carries this idea that God is calling out to people. There is a general call that happens from yahoos like me and folks like you as we share our faith with others and we say, come, come to repentance, come to Jesus. There's a call that goes out in that way, but there's a very specific call, the theological term is an effectual call, meaning that when that call goes out, it will be effective. And this call comes from God. God is the caller that Jude has in mind right here. The scriptures are littered with letting us know this. God is the caller in Romans 9, 11, Galatians 5, 8, 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, and 5, 24, 1 Peter 1, 15, 2, 9, 5, 10, and 2 Peter 1, 3. All of us know that God himself is the caller. Now, who answers the call? His people. His people are the called, Romans 1, 1, 6, and 7, Romans 8, 28, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 24, Revelation 17, 24, lets us know that God calls and his people embrace the call, accept the call. Jesus talks about a banquet that he wants to go into throw, and he invites people to come out, and, come, and those that come are the called. What is so incredible is, this, is that God gives us this idea. He sends out the word, whew, from him and the call goes out to people and there is power that goes out in this call. It is inviting, it is compelling to us, but not only is it inviting and compelling, it actually, his call gives us the power to come forth. Now, don't think of it in terms of God is going to pin us down on the ground and he's going to force us to come into his kingdom. It's actually something that he woos our hearts in such a manner that when we hear his call, we come. Think of it this way. Think of a 24-year-old girl, woman, sorry, 24-year-old woman, 
who is madly in love with a godly, good, righteous man. This is a man who fears the Lord and has done a good job of protecting her heart, etc., all those things, and, and she is just longing for him to finally call to her. And that time comes and he surprises her and he gets down on that knee and he opens that box and he says, will you marry me? The call goes out now. Can she refuse that? Why? Her heart will not let her refuse it. When Jesus calls out to us, our hearts won't let us refuse. It is Christ's love that compels us. That's the picture that he's giving here to the call. Then he gives some qualifiers that are going to go along with this. He says, beloved by God or beloved in God. Either way, their translation is appropriate there. The being loved by God is the source of the call. It is the reason behind the call. It has this idea in the original language of this word that is an ongoing ever um, state of being. In other words, he never, ever stops loving us. Now, I wish that I could say that I have done the the most marvelous job throughout our years in marriage where my wife has that same moment of bliss that she had when I got down on a knee at Chihuahua Park and asked her to marry me, and she was very excited. I wish I could say that she had that same level of bliss every morning. But that's not me. This is the beautiful thing about the scripture he's telling us is that God has that capability to continue to woo his bride over and over and over and over again. He calls and we keep coming and we keep coming because we are beloved and cherished by God himself. You are called. You are beloved. And the final one that he says is you are kept for Jesus or kept by Jesus. Again, either translation is appropriate and I think that we don't even really have to decide which one of those we want to go with because the scriptures give us an indication of both. In John 17 as well as John 10, it talks about God keeping us for Jesus for the day when he returns. And it all, scriptures also talk about Jesus keeping us for God. We are the gift that is given to the Father. We are the gift that the Father gives to the Son. And both of them say, I got gotcha. you. You're kept, but the only way we are kept is when we are in right relationship, and the only way we're in right relationship is when we come through Jesus himself. An old Puritan scholar named Thomas Manton, old Puritan uh, preacher, said this, Jesus Christ is the cabinet in which God's jewels are kept, so that if we would stand, we must get out of ourselves and get into him, in whom alone there is safety. I love the picture he gives that there is a cabinet, and inside of that cabinet goes precious jewels. We are the jewels who go inside the cabinet of Jesus. When we are in Christ Jesus, we are kept by Jesus. It is his faithfulness. It is his record. It is his ability to hang on. It's not our ability to obey. Now, are you beginning to catch some of the reason why John Newton would say, This grace is amazing. So far, what have I talked about that we can really take credit for? Called. Loved. Kept by Jesus. 
Verse 2 is sort of a wish prayer, if you will. Wish, I don't mean to say, golly, I don't know if this could ever really occur. I don't mean that. Just saying that this is something, a blessing, so to speak. He's praying for them. He's asking God to do in them. And look at the words that he uses, mercy. Mercy is showing kindness. It is unmerited. It is giving compassion to someone in need. It is pity. It is condescending, as in God condescending towards us, not in a way that, um, uh, that we would condescend towards someone else who is beneath us, meaning that he comes to us in love and compassion and shows mercy on us. Specifically, I think what he's getting at is that we will receive mercy on the day in which God brings about judgment. He's going to talk about judgment in verses 5 through 16. And he's letting the people know that, that judgment is not yours. Peace. Peace is a quiet confidence of the soul that regardless of what's taking place around us, regardless of the circumstances that are happening, there is this calm inwardly because God is on his throne. He has not left. And when we are focused in that direction, there's a peace that passes all understanding. Since we have peace with God, he's telling him we will experience the peace of God. Another word he mentions in there is love. It's the word agape. Interestingly, it's the only time that it's used in any of the opening greetings of a New Testament letter. Mercy, peace, love, grace, the, uh, or mercy, peace, and grace are mentioned in several other letters, but this is the only letter in the New Testament where the word love is mentioned in the opening salutations. And then he says, I want these things to be multiplied to you. This means that it would be filled to capacity, not capacity to our ability to understand but capacity to what God can do for us, meaning it is ever multiplying, it is ever growing. We are growing in our awareness of his love and his mercy and his peace is reigning over us. It happened more and more and more and more. In this opening greeting, what Jude has done is he has said this, you are secure. Now, why does he do that? Because what he's about to get into He wants them to understand. Bob Cargo two weeks ago so masterfully preached on this. I just want to echo the same sentiments. I can't add to it. Here's what he said. This grace of God that is forgiving, that cleanses us, is ridiculous. It is amazing. It is glorious. And the same ridiculous, glorious, amazing nature is the power of God. Same grace. He forgives when we blow it, but he enables us to overcome. This is what God desires for us, to live a holy and righteous life. He says, I'm going to forgive you so that you won't fear abandonment from me. But what I want you to know is this same power to forgive is the power that you have to resist. Now, let's go. Let's get after it. Let's live like Christ. You're going to do that. I'm going to do that. No, but his grace enables us. Verse 3, he gives us the third R, the reason for the letter. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. This word includes three realms of it. There is this past saving that God has done where we are made right with him. It's a one-time act. We are declared righteous. We are justified before God. The other aspect of this salvation he's referring to, though, is this ongoing process where we are made more and more like Christ. We are continually being saved from ourselves, etc. 
Over here is the future saving that will take place where we no longer even have the capability of ever sinning. Yes and amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, for this. Past, present, and future have been saved, beings and being saved, and will be saved. I wanted to write to you about that, but I was compelled to write to you so that you would contend for the faith. This word contend, we get the English word agonize. It's used of those in athletic competitions. It's also used of those in war. It is hard work. It is grueling. It is difficult. It is ongoing. It will not stop until those skies rip open and he returns once again. It is just going to continue on and on and on. It is going to be agony. What he's saying is this, fight. Don't give up. Don't give in to your flesh. Don't don't resist what it is that God's doing. I know it's difficult. I know it's exhausting. But this same grace to forgive is the grace that will empower you. And I'm telling you, look at this. Look at both of them. Hold them in the proper biblical tension. Fight. Fight for this message that was once for all delivered to the saints. Fight for the faith. This word faith is used in several other places. Acts 13, 8 and 14, 2. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Galatians 1, 23. Philippians 1, 27. Colossians 2, 7. 1 Timothy 4, 1. Hebrews 4, 14. The reason I'm giving you all these verses is to say he's not asking for something that the other apostles weren't asking for. He was an apostle. He's just saying... It's the faith. It is a a system of objective truth that we are to believe in. It's not just blind faith. It's the gospel message itself. What it is that Christ did, is doing, and will do. His life, death, resurrection. Contend for it. He says it was once for all delivered. I think he's just simply referring to Moses all the way through the apostles. This message has been delivered. It culminated in Jesus and pointing to it. And then he says... It's delivered. Again, there's a responsibility that we have with this message of the faith. Now, he then closes that time, that verse out, by calling us something very interesting. It is delivered to the saints. We're called saints. When you look at your life, do you consider yourself a saint? The saints are not some subset of Navy SEALs of Christendom or Army Rangers or whatever the, those guys are nuts, robotic, they're machines, they're cyborgs. It's not, that's not what he's referring to saints here. They're not some subset. This is what God calls all of the Christians. Just look at the passages, Romans 1, 7, 1 Corinthians 1, 2, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Ephesians 1, 1, Philippians 1, 1, Colossians 1, 2. Can I just ask you a quick question? You know, the scripture does both of these, and so both of these are equally true. But at various times in our lives, we need to be reminded that we are sinners who are saved by grace. And other times in our lives, we need to be reminded that we are saints who sin. When we are proud and haughty and arrogant, remember you're a sinner that is saved by grace. When you are beaten down, remember the words of God the Father to you, you are a saint. You sin. I'll forgive it, and I'll empower you. Now, why 
do we need to contend? This is where we end. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says there's certain people who have crept in unnoticed. These are people who were not a part of the original church. They were folks that had claimed they had gotten some sort of divine revelation from God because after all, Paul got revelation and Peter got revelation and John got revelation and James got revelation. So we've gotten this revelation as well. And so they came in and it says that they crept in unnoticed. Now, I'm going to do this again. I I like dogs, so I'm not going to pick on a dog. I'm going to cats. I don't really like. So it's like a cat just comes running in to the building here and we just unnoticed. Here's why. Because dogs, man... Dogs come in, and cat. what do cats do? You'd say, hey, I don't like cats at all. So cats are the ones that come in unnoticed over here. My deepest apologies if you're a cat lover. I just don't understand you, right? <clears throat> They've crept in unnoticed to us, and, and now they're bringing this destructive message. Now he has four statements that he's going to make, four charges that he's going to make against them. Number one, that they are designated for condemnation. It was written about them long ago that they would be condemned. He's talking about Jewish apocalyptic literature. He's also talking about the whole of the scriptures that are writing towards their destruction. Anyone, anyone, anyone who claims to be a teacher of God's word and comes in and teaches something in direct opposition to God's word is designated condemnation unless there's repentance now why are they condemned second charge is because they are ungodly it is the opposite of the fear of the Lord it is not that they are unaware of God it's that they're very aware of God they're very aware of the moral obligations that are required of these people and yet they're intentionally and willfully choosing to ignore the moral obligation grace it's just grace man don't have to obey anymore they're ungodly the third charge they pervert the grace of god into sensuality where's a very specific term that he's using in which it is sexual sin all sexual activity outside One man and one woman who have been united under God in marriage is sin. So you throw whatever specific action you want there, it's all under that. It's all sin. Unless it's done in God's way, in God's time, under his box. One more thing real quick before I move on. This is thus saith David and not thus saith the Lord. So we have to be careful here, but I really do believe this. This is an educated guess that I'm making here is that these teachers of the law, these guys who had so-called new revelation, had taken this message in which they said, you know what, it doesn't matter anymore. We don't have to obey. Therefore, we can do whatever we want to do with our bodies. They were creeping in here. And they were taking advantage of the younger women who were misled. 
And Jude starts to rise up in the way that a pastor rises up. Several years ago over in this little cafeteria area, we had a guys-only meeting and the girls were meeting somewhere else. I still to this day don't know what the girls were talking about. But on this day, I was talking to the guys about how do you treat the younger women as sisters, high school guys. I said, gentlemen, I know that there's a certain portion of you that are here right now. And the driving reason you're here is because you are trying to get in good relationships with some of the girls in our ministry to take advantage of them. And I want you to know that I will find out and I will kick your tail. Now, I'm not advocating violence, but I want you just for a moment, if a pastor has that sort of a reaction right there, what do, every dad in this building understands that. How do you want men to treat your daughters? If we feel that, we must understand, we feel only a fraction of what it is that God Almighty feels about his daughters that he has made in his image. Jesus doesn't treat his bride like that. And so he says, men, do not treat women like that. You treat them as sisters. So if you're a middle school boy or a high school boy or a college boy or a 20-year-old boy or 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80-year-old boy, please hear this. If you have in your heart a desire to take advantage of women, fear God. Because he loves them way more than I do. The fourth charge that he gives is that they deny Jesus as Lord. This is the foundational confession of a Christian. You can't have Jesus as just Savior without having him as Lord. In other words, there can't be a time in which the intention of our heart is anything other than, God, I don't own myself. I have been bought at a price. You have the right to do with me whatever you want. And so he's the one who calls the shots. Romans chapter 10 gives us this foundational confession. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and he is saved. When we say Jesus is Lord, he is ruler over all, he is creator and sustainer over all, he is the one who has the preeminent seat. He answers to no one. Outside of the Father, he answers to, he doesn't answer to us. Unless that's a position of our heart, scriptures seem to indicate we don't really know him. Meaning that it's the position of my heart at every single moment of every single day, of course not, but it's the intention of my heart to come back and say, Lord, I blew it once again. Will you help? Now, let's close our time by just a couple of things. Christopher Green wrote a great commentary on this book of Jude, and he draws our attention to The heart of Jude is to bring people to a repentance in there. Listen to what he has to say. Quite possibly the people Jude is trying to deal with had an elitist view of their spiritual standing and maturity and saw themselves as being more free and confident in their morality than others, less mature, law-bound believers. But Jude emphasizes that the offer of salvation is wide open for it is a common faith. And ironically, it is open to even the very people who are so scornfully denying it to others. Folks, I'm telling you, Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sin. Even the ones where we distort his gospel message and he rose again from the dead and he gives us that same power to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we have received. 
if we will but repent, we can access that grace. Three pieces of application, and then I close with just a brief illustration. Number one, delight in being a submissive servant to Jesus. Just as Jude delighted in that, I think we are called to delight in being a submissive servant to Jesus. The closer we grow with him in our life, the more we will find that this is the growing desire in our hearts to become more and more and more obedient, to continue to submit ourselves in humble service to and with him. Number two, relish in the love and grace of God. It is impossible. It is impossible to overemphasize the grace of God. Relish in it. It's impossible to overemphasize the love of God. Relish in it, delight in it, bask in it. And number three, strive and fight empowered by the Spirit for a biblical understanding of grace. Strive and fight by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand this and this. This is not amazing grace. It's only half the story. This is amazing. Several years ago, I was speaking at a retreat in Gulf Shores, Alabama. My wife and I were not yet married, but we were engaged. It would be just a few months. In fact, it was 20 years ago this summer that this would have been uh, occurring. We had our 20th anniversary just 11 days ago. And while we were there on that trip 20 years ago, she was staying with the girls, I was staying with the guys, and we're talking to them uh, about great stuff. And then we came back, and on the way back, stopped in Montgomery to meet with a dear friend of mine, a hero in the faith of mine. Just setting up our dinner plans to make sure we were still on and stopped by his office, got there and talked to him, and he shared with me that he was involved in an extramarital affair. Now, I didn't have condescension towards him. I know that all of us are capable of that, but um, it was a major blow. Went away and had an opportunity to pray that night. Judith knew something was wrong when I got back in the car, but I couldn't even discuss it with her at that moment. And so I had a chance to go away and to pray on the old football field that I used to play on at the high school. And walking around there and praying that night, I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying something true to me. It would not necessarily be the case for every Christian. He would be able to lead others in a different way than he led me on this occasion. But on this one, I just sensed him saying, if this ever happens and Judith is the one who seeks out another man, David, I want you to realize that you have lost her heart. Fight for her and woo her once again. Do not ever file for divorce. I shared this with her. and She listened to the news and then she said, thank you. But David, I cannot say the same thing. I said, no problem. Two years into our marriage, she came back to me and said, do you remember that conversation we had at Shep's house? I said, I do. She said, I want you to know I feel the same way. We made a pact, a covenant with one another that if we ever reached a place in life where we were struggling too greatly, not just in terms of an extramarital affair, but just struggling in general, if we got to that place that the other person had the right to go to the church and bring them in and say, help us. How much sense would it make if I were to say, well, you know, my wife has told me that there's nothing I can do in which she's going to abandon me. I don't have to fear that anymore. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start hanging out with six or seven other women. How much sense does that make? 
That's not embracing what it is that she has done for me. Jude says this is the same. To take this and make this into a license, to not have to do this, is missing the point. Amazing grace. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for who it is that you are and what it is that you have done. Lord, I ask that you would do a deep work in our souls, that we would believe, as Jeff talked about earlier, we know it in our heads, but Lord, would you transfer it to our hearts to believe the truth that you have given to us. If there's anything that I've spoken here today that is not true, then erase it from our minds. But Lord, whatever is from you, I pray that you would deeply embed it within our hearts and we would become doers of your word rather than just hearers only. We love you. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.